pop up. Come on. There you go. All right. There we go. All right. Then we can continue. All right. In all these matters, the Russian and the Western tales agree, but the Skazka differs from most stories of its kind in this respect, that it almost invariably speaks of two kinds of magic waters as being employed for the restoration of life. We have already seen in the story of Maria Morvena that one of these, sometimes called the Metveria Voda, the dead water, or water of death, when sprinkled over a mutilated, mutilated corpse, heals all of its wounds, while the other, which bears the name of Shemsvaya Voda, the living water, or water of life, endows it once more with vitality. Does the footnote end? It doesn't tell you. Okay. In a Norse tale in Asgajornan's new series, number 72, um, by the way, this is an early 1900s, so it's a brand new book in the 1900s. Yeah. Um, mention is made of a water of death as opposed to a water of life. Uh, the death water throws all whom it touches into a magic sleep, from which only life water can rouse them. In the Ramayana, Hanuman fetches four different kinds of herbs into, in order to resuscitate his dead monkeys. Uh, the first restore the dead to life, the second drive away all pain, the third join broken parts, and the fourth cure all wounds. And th that was from Cowboys Wheeler History of India. In the Egyptian story already mentioned in, on page 113, um, Satow's corpse quivers and opens its eyes when his heart has become saturated with a healing liquid but he does not actually come to life till the remainder of the liquid has been poured down his throat. In a Kyrgyz story, quoted by Bronesky, a golden-haired hero finds, after a long search, a maiden to whom he had in her very early life been betrothed. Her father has him murdered. Boy, what a great father-in-law. <laughs> She persuades the murderer to show her the body of her dead love and weeps over it bitterly. The spirit appears and tells her to sprinkle it with water from a neighboring well. The well is very deep, but she induces the murderer to allow her to lower him into it by means of her remarkably long hair. He descends and hands her a cup of water. Having received it, she cuts off her hair and lets the murderer drop and be drowned. Then she sprinkles her lover's corpse with the water, and he revives. But he lives only three days. 
She refuses to survive him and is buried by his side. From the graves of the lovers spring two willows, which mingle their boughs as if in an embrace. And the neighbors set up near the spot three statues, his and hers and her nurses. Such is the story, says Brovensky, which the Kyrgyz tell with respect to some statues of unknown origin, which stand, or used to stand, near the Ayagaza, a river falling into Lake Balkash. By the way, if I'm mispronouncing any of this Russian, I do apologize, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> a somewhat similar Armenian story is quoted by Hakslasen in his Transkaskasia, page 350 of the English translation. In the Kalevala, when Lemmy Kanen has been torn to pieces, his mother collects his scattered remains and by a dexterous synthetical operation restores him to physical unity, but the silence of death still possesses him. Then she entreats the honeybee to bring vivifying honey. After two fruitless journeys, the bee succeeds in bringing back honey from the cellar of the creator. When this has been applied, the dead man returns to life, sits up, and says in the words of Russian heroes, How long have I slept? Here's another instance of life-giving operation of a double nature. There is a well-known Indian story about four suitors for the hand of one girl. She dies, but is restored to life by one of her lovers, who happens one day to see a dead child resuscitated and learns how to perform similar miracles. In two Sanskrit versions of the Veta Lapan Shavinsada, as well as in the Hindu version, the life-giving charm consists of a spell taken from a book of magic. But in the Tamil version, the process is described as being of a different and double nature. According to it, the mother of a murdered child, by the charm called Sisupadam, recreated the body. And by the incantation called Sanjivi, restored it to life. The suitor, having learned the charm and the incantation, took the bones and ashes of the dead girl, and having created out of them the body, by virtue of a charm, Sisupabam, gave to life that body by the Sanjibi incantation. According to Mr. Babington, Sanjibi um, is defined by Tamilus to be a medicine which restores to life by dissipating a mortal swoon. In the text, the word is used for the art of using this medicine. As a general rule, the two waters of which 
mention is made in the Skazkas, possesses the virtues and are employed in the manner mentioned above. But there are cases in which their powers are of a different nature. Sometimes we meet with two magic fluids, one which heals all wounds and restores sight to the blind and vigor to the cripple, while the other destroys all that it touches. Sometimes, also, recourse is had to magic drafts of two kinds. The one of which strengthens him who coughs it, while the other produces the opposite effect. Such liquors, liquors as these are known as waters of strength and weakness, and are usually described as being stowed away in the cellar of some many-headed snake. For the snake is often mentioned as the possessor, or at least the guardian, of magic fluids. Thus, one of the Skaskas speaks of a wondrous garden in which are two springs of healing and vivifying water, and around that garden is coiled like a ring a mighty serpent. Another tells how a flying snake brought two heroes to a lake in which they flung a green bough, and immediately the bough broke into flame and was consumed. Then it took them to another lake, into which they cast a moldy log, and the log straight away began to put forth buds and blossoms. In some cases, the magic waters are the property, not of the snake, but of one of the mighty heroines who so often occur in these stories, and who bears so great a resemblance to Brynhild, as well as other respects, as in that of her enchanted sleep. Thus, in one of the Skaskas, an aged king dreams that beyond thrice nine lands in the thirtieth country, there is a maid there from whose hands and feet water is flowing, of which water he who drinks will become thirty years younger. His sons go forth in search of this youth-giving liquid, and... After many adventures, the youngest is directed to the golden castle in which lives the fair maiden, whom his father has seen in his vision. He has been told that when she is awake, her custom is to divert herself in the green fields with her Amazon host. For nine days, she rambles about, and then for nine days, she sleeps a heroic slumber. The prince hides himself among the bushes near the and sees a maiden there come out of it surrounded by an armed band and all of the band consists of maidens each one more beautiful than the other and the most beautiful the most never enough to be gazed upon is the queen herself for nine days he watches the fair band of amazons as they ramble about on the tenth day all is still and he enters the castle in the midst of her slumbering, guards in the midst of her slumbering, guards sleeps the queen on the couch of down, the healing water flowing from her hands and feet. 
With it, he fills two flasks, and then he retires. When the queen awakes, she becomes conscious of the theft and pursues the prince. Coming up with him, she slays him with a single blow, but then takes compassion on him and restores him to life. Okay. Good to know. In another version of the story, the precious fluid is contained in the flask, which is hidden under the pillow of a slumbering Tsar, tsar Maiden. Tsar. T-S-A-R. Tsar Maiden. <laughs> uh, the prince steals it and flees, but he bears on him the weight of sin. And so when he tries to clear the fence, fence with, which girds the enchanted castle, his horse strikes one of the cords attached to it, and the spell is broken, which maintains the magic sleep in which the realm is locked. Hey, Autumn. The Tsar Maiden pursues the thief, but does not succeed in catching him. He is killed, however, by his elder brothers, who cut him into small pieces and then take the flask of water to their father. The murder prince is resuscitated by the mythical bird known by the name of the Tsar Pitsa, which collects his scattered fragments, puts them together, and sprinkles them first with dead water, and then with live water, conveyed for that purchase purpose in his beak, after which the prince gets up, thanks his reviver, and goes on his way. In one of numerous variants of the story, in which a prince is exposed to various dangers by his sister, who is induced to plot against his life by her demon lover, the snake, the hero is sent in search of a healing and vivifying water. Preserved between two lofty mountains, which cleave closely together. Except during two or three minutes of each day. He follows his instructions, rides to a certain spot, and there waits the hour at which the mountains fly apart. Suddenly, a terrible hurricane arose, a mighty thunder smote and the two mountains were torn asunder. Prince Ivan, who of course is an Ivan, spurred his heroic steed, flew like a dart between the mountains, and dipped two flasks in the waters, and instantly turned back. He himself escapes safe and sound, but the hind legs of his horse are caught between the closing cliffs, and smashes to pieces. The magic waters, of course, soon remedy this temporary inconvenience. In a Slavic version of this story, a murderous mother sends her son to two mountains, each of which is cleft open once in every 24 hours, the one opening at midday and the other at midnight. The former disclosing the water of life, the latter the water of death. In a similar story from the Ukraine, mention is made of two springs of healing in life-giving water, which are guarded by iron-beaked ravens. 
and the way to which lies between grinding hills. The fox and the hare are sent in quest of this magic fluid. The, box, the fox goes and returns in safety, but the hare, on her way back, is not in time quite to clear the meeting cliffs, and her tail is jammed in between them. Since that time, hares have had no tails. On the waters of strength and weakness, much stress is laid in many of the tales about the many-headed snakes, which carry off men's wives and daughters to their metallic castles. In one of these, for instance, a golden-haired Queen Anastasia has been torn away by the whirlwind from her husband, Tsar Biel Yelanin, the White King. As in the variant of the story already quoted, her sons go in search of her, and the youngest of them, after finding three palaces, the first of copper, the second of silver, the third of gold, each containing a princess held captive by Vikor, the whirlwind, comes to a fourth palace gleaming with diamonds and other precious stones. In it, he discovers his long-lost mother, who gladly greets him and at once takes him into the poor's cellar. Here is the account of what ensued. While they entered the cellar, there stood two tubs of water, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. Says the queen, take a draft of the water which that stands on the right hand. Prince Ivan, because of course it's Prince Ivan. Prince Ivan drank with it. Take a draft of the water that stands on the Okay. Now then, how strong do you feel? said she. So strong that I could upset the whole palace with one hand, he replied. Come now, drink again. The prince drank once more. How strong do you feel now? Why now, if I wanted, I could give the whole world the joy. Oh, that's plenty then. Now, make these tubs change places. That which stands on the right, set on the left, and that which is on the left, change to the right. Prince Ivan took the tubs and made them change places, says the queen. See now, my dear son, in one of these tubs is the water of strength, in the other is the water of weakness. He who drinks of the former becomes a mighty hero, but he who drinks of the second loses all his vigor. Vicor always puffs, quaffs the strong water and places it on the right-hand side. Therefore, you must deceive him, or you will never be able to hold out against him. The queen proceeds to tell her son that when Vicor comes home, he must hide beneath her purple cloak and watch for an opportunity of seizing her gailer's magic mace. Vicor will fly about till he is tired and will then have recourse to what he supposes is the strong water. This will render, render him so feeble that the prince will be able to kill him. Having received these instructions, and having been warned not to strike Vicor after he is dead, the prince conceals himself, 
Suddenly, the day becomes darkened and the palace quivers. And Vicor arrives, stamping on the ground. He becomes a noble gallant who enters the palace, holding in his hands a battle mace. This Prince Ivan seizes, and a long struggle takes place between him and Vicor, who flies away with him over seas and into the clouds. At last, Vicor becomes exhausted and seeks the place where he expects to find the invigorating draft on which he is accustomed to rely. The result is as follows. Dropping right into his cellar, Vicor ran to the tub which stood on the right and began drinking the water of weakness. But Prince Ivan rushed to the left, quaffed a deep draft of the water of strength, and became the mightiest hero in the whole world. Then seeing that Vicor was perfectly enfeebled, he snatched from him his keen falchion, and a single blow struck off his head. Behind him, voices began to cry, Strike again, strike again, or he will come to life. No, replied the prince. A hero's hand does not strike twice, but finishes its work with a single blow. And straight away he lighted a fire, burnt the head and the trunk, and scattered the ashes to the wind. Part played by the water and strength. Water of strength in this story may be compared with the important share which the exhilarating juice of the soma plant assumes in bracing Indura for his conflict with the hostile powers in the atmosphere. And Vicor's sudden debility with that of Indra when the Asura Namushi drank up Indra's strength, along with a draft of wine and soma. Sometimes he has already been remarked. Sometimes, as has already been remarked, one of the two magic waters is even more dangerous than the water of weakness. The following may be taken as a specimen of the stories in which there is introduced a true water of death, one of those deadly springs which bears the same relation to the healing and the vivifying fonts that the enfeebling bears to the strengthening water. The Baba Yaga who figures in it is, as is so often the case, replaced by a snake in the variant to which allusion has already been made. Right. This is the blind man and the cripple. Blind man and the cripple. Are we doing okay? Everybody can hear me so far? And everybody is finding it as interesting as I am because I found this very really fascinating. Alright. Nobody's fully talking, so. Hmm. And again, there's a terrible delay with Facebook, so just give it a couple seconds. So, moving into the tale of the blind man and the cripple. In a certain kingdom, there lived a king and a queen, 
they had a son, Prince Ivan. And to look after that son was appointed a tutor named Katoma. The king and queen lived to a great age. But then they fell ill and despaired of ever recovering. So they sent for Prince Ivan and strictly enjoined him. When we are dead, do what do you in everything respect and obey Katoma. If you obey him, you will prosper. But if you choose to be disobedient, you will perish like a fly. The next day, the king and queen died. Prince Ivan buried his parents and took to living according to their instructions. Whatever he had to do, he always consulted his tutor about it. Some time passed by. The prince attained to man's estate and began to think about getting married. So one day he went to his tutor and said, Katoma, I'm tired of living alone. I want to marry. Well, Prince, what's to prevent you? You're of an age at which it's time to think about a bride. Go into the Great Hall. There is a collection there of portraits of all the princesses in the world. Look at them and choose for yourself, whichever pleases you, to send a proposal of marriage. All right, just have all these portraits. Colorful ladies. Yeah. Prince Ivan went into the Great Hall and began examining the portraits. And the one that pleased him best was that of Princess Anna the Fair. Such a beauty. The like of her wasn't to be found in the whole world. Underneath her portrait were written these words. If anyone asks her a riddle, and she does not guess it, him shall she marry. But he whose riddle she guesses shall have his head chopped off. Prince Ivan read this inscription, became greatly afflicted, and went to his tutor. I've been in the great hall, and I picked out for my bride Anna the Fair. Only I don't know whether it's possible to win her. Yes, Prince, she's hard to get. If you go alone, you won't win her anyhow. But if you will take me with you, and if you will do what I tell you, perhaps the affair can be managed. Prince Ivan begged Katoma to go with him and gave his word of honor to obey him, whether in joy or grief. Well, they got ready for the journey and set off to sue for the hand of the Princess Anne of the Fair. They traveled for one year, two years, three years, and traversed many countries says Prince Ivan. We've been traveling all this time, Uncle, and now we're approaching the country of Princess Anna the Fair, and yet we don't know what, know what riddle to profound. We shall manage to think of one in good time, replied Katoma. They went a little farther. Katoma was looking down on the road, and on it lay a purse full of money. He lifted it up directly poured all the money out of it into his own purse and said, Here's a riddle for you, Prince Ivan. When you come into the presence of the princess, 
propounded riddle to her in these words. As we were coming along, we saw good lying on the road, and we took up the good with good, and placed it in our own good. That riddle she won't guess in a lifetime, but any other she would find out directly. She would only have to look into her magic book, and as soon as she had guessed it, she'd order your head to be cut off. Well, at last the Prince Ivan and his tutor arrived at the lofty palace in which lived the fair princess. At that moment, she happened to be out on the balcony, and when she saw the newcomers, she sent out to know whence they came and what they wanted. Prince Ivan replied, I have come from such and such a kingdom. That's an auspicious kingdom and wished to sue for the hand of the princess Anna the Fair. When she was informed of this, the princess gave orders that the prince would enter the palace, and there, in the presence of all princes and warriors of her council, should propound his riddle. I've made this compact, she said. Anyone whose riddle I cannot guess, him I must marry. But anyone whose riddle I can guess, him I may put to death. Listen to my riddle, fair princess, said Prince Ivan. As we came along, we saw good lying on the road, and we took up the good with good, and placed it in our own good. Princess Anna the Fair took her magic book, and began turning over its leaves, and examining the answers of riddles. She went right through the book, but she didn't get to the meaning she wanted. Thereupon, the princess and warriors for council decided that the princess must marry Prince Ivan. She wasn't at all pleased, for there was no help for it, and so she began to get ready for the wedding. Meanwhile, she considered her within herself how she could spin out the time and do away with the bridegroom, and she thought the best way was to overwhelm him with tremendous tasks. So she called the Prince Ivan and said to him, My dear Prince Ivan, my destined husband, it is meet that we should prepare for the wedding. Pray do me this small service. On such and such a spot of my kingdom, there stands a lofty iron pillar. Carry it into the palace kitchen and chop it into small chunks by way of fuel for the Excuse me, Princess, replied the Prince. Was it to chop fuel that I came here? Is that the proper sort of employment for me? I have a servant for that kind of thing. Patoma Didaska of the Open Chakra. Okay. The Prince straight away called for his tutor and ordered him to drag the iron pillar into the kitchen and to chop it into small chunks by way of fuel for the cook. Katoma went to the spot indicated by the princess, seized the pillar in his arms, and brought it into the palace kitchen, and broke it into little pieces. But four of the iron ships he put into his pocket, saying, They'll prove useful by and by. Next day, the princess says to Prince Ivan, My dear prince, my destined husband, tomorrow we have to go to the wedding. I will drive in a carriage 
but you should ride on a heroic steed, and it is necessary that you should break him in beforehand. I break a horse in myself. I keep a servant for that. Go into the stable and tell the grooms to bring forth the heroic steed. Sit upon him and break him in. Tomorrow I've got to ride him to the wedding. Katoma fathomed the subtle device of the princess. But without stopping long to talk, he went to the stable and told the grooms to bring forth the heroic steed. Twelve grooms were mustered. They unlocked twelve locks, opened twelve doors, and brought forth a magic horse in twelve chains of iron. Katoma went up to them. No sooner had he managed to seat himself than the magic horse leapt up and soared higher than the forest, higher than the standing forest, lower than the flitting cloud. Firm sat Katoma, with one hand grasping the mane. With the other, he took from his pocket an iron chunk and began taming the horse with it between the ears. Okay. When he had used up one chunk, he betook himself to another. Then two were used up, he took to a third. When three were used up, the fourth came into play. And so grievously did he punish the heroic steed that he could not hold out any longer, but cried aloud with a human voice. Bajuska Katoma, don't utterly deprive me of life in the white world. Whatever you wish that you that do you order, all shall be done according to your will. Listen, O meat up for dogs, answered Katoma. Tomorrow Prince Ivan shall ride you to the wedding. Now mind, when the grooms bring you out into the white courtyard, and the prince goes up on you and lays his hand on you, do you stand quietly, not moving so much as a ear? And when he is seated on your back, do you sink into the earth, right up to your fetlocks, and then move under him with a heavy step, just as if an immeasurable weight had been laid upon your back? The heroic steed listened to the order and sank to earth scarcely alive. Katoma seized him by the tail and flung him close to the stable, crying, Ho there, coachman and grooms, carry off this dog's meat to his stall. That story. Um, the next day arrived. The time drew near for going to the wedding. The carriage was brought round for the princess and the heroic steed for Prince Ivan. The people were gathered together from all sides, a countless number. The bride and bridegroom came up from the white stone halls. The princess got into the carriage and waited to see what would become of Prince Ivan whether the magic horse would fling his curls to the wind and scatter his bones across the open plain. Prince Ivan approached the horse, laid his hand upon his back, placed his foot in the stirrup. The horse stood just as if petrified, didn't so much as wag an ear. The prince got onto his back. The magic horse sank into the earth up to its fetlock. The twelve chains were taken off the horse. It began to move with an even, heavy pace. 
while the sweat poured off it just like hail. What a hero, what immeasurable strength, cried the people as they gazed upon the prince. So the bride and bridegroom were married. And then they began to move out of the church, holding each other by the hand. The princess took it into her head to make one more trial of Prince Ivan. So she squeezed his hand so hard that she, he could not bear the pain. His face became suffused with blood. His eyes disappeared beneath his brows. A fine sort of hero you are, thought the princess. Your tutor has tricked me splendidly, but you shan't get off her nothing. The princess Anna the Fair lived for some time with Ivan as a wife ought to live with a good God-given husband, flattered him every way in words, but in reality, never thought of anything except by what means she might get rid of Katona. With the prince, without the tutor, there'd be no difficulty in settling matters, she said to herself, and whatever slander she might invent, Prince Ivan never would allow himself to be influenced by what she said but always felt sorry for his tutor. At the end of the year, at, at the end of a year, he said to his wife one day, beauteous princess, my beloved spouse, I should like to go with you to my own kingdom. By all means, replied she, let us go. I myself have long wished to see your kingdom. Well, they got ready and went off. Katoma was allotted the post of coachman. They drove and drove, and as they drove along, Prince Ivan went to sleep. Suddenly the princess, Anna, the fair, awoke him and utterly loud complaints. Listen, prince, we're always, you're always sleeping. You hear nothing. But your tutor doesn't obey me a bit. He drives the horse on purpose over a hill and dale, just as if he wanted to put an end to us both. I tried speaking him fair, but he jeered at me. I won't go on living any longer if you don't punish him. Prince Ivan, twixt sleeping and waking, waxed every wrath with his tutor and handed him over entirely to the princess, saying, Deal with him as you please. The princess ordered his feet to be cut off. Potoma submitted patiently to the outrage. Very good, he thinks. I shall suffer, it's true. But the prince also will know what to lead a wretched life is like. When both of Potoma's feet had been cut off, the princess glanced around, saw that a tall tree stump stood on one side. So she called her servants and ordered them to set him on that stump. But as for Prince Ivan, she tied him to the carriage by a cord, turned the horses round and drove back to her own kingdom. Potoma was set sitting on the stump, weeping bitter tears. Farewell, Prince Ivan. You won't forget me. I don't know. See, I don't see how this could end very well um, for either of them. Okay, this is where you get the point here, and it's a fairly long story. And we're about eight forty-seven. Usually, this is when I cut off. So, um, at that juncture, that's horrible. And to the next. And the night. The story continues on, and apparently there's a happy ending at the end. Yeah.
with some kind of ending at least. Um, and I also thank everyone for popping in and listening in. Um, I hope that you do, and hope everyone has a lovely evening, and see you tomorrow for Sherlock Holmes at 8 o'clock. Alright, talk to you later. Have a good night. Showed it from Discord either, but yeah. Okay, so that live ended. And I looked fairly quick. Okay, so.